five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the first episode of our annual summer season special. We've just completed season four, and season five is currently scheduled to start on September 27th. Between now and then, we'll be featuring weekly interviews or presentations from other content creators. Today, we have a future in space operations presentation from April of this year. The presenter is Mike Lindsay, CTO of Astroscale who discusses the need for satellite life extension services, active debris removal, their technology, and offerings. We offer this presentation now as Astroscale's LCD mission successfully demonstrated repeated magnetic capture of a client satellite last week. In his presentation, Mike states, space development demands sustainability. This has never been more true. Space debris is and has been a problem since the early days of, of the space age. While most space actors are taking sustainability into account, the issue of legacy debris is a problem still without a cost-effective solution. Companies like Astrostale are trying to make the business case by offering innovative solutions. They aren't offering to clean up legacy debris, but what they are attempting is a good first step. As new ideas, technologies, and importantly, business solutions come into existence, we can only hope that all space debris, legacy and new, can be safely removed. Listen in. All right, thank you. Um, just a quick disclaimer, I have uh, I was a bit sick last week and I'm <laughs> maybe still recovering, so if I take breaks uh, to mute, just grab a sip of uh, tea here to, to help my voice. Um, so yeah, thank you all for, for making the accommodation, uh, change the time here, uh, giving me an opportunity to speak to you all. Uh, my name is Mike Lindsay. I'm the CTO for Astroscale. I'm currently based in Tokyo. Uh, I've lived here uh, just over a year. I moved here February of 2020, and a very interesting time to move overseas. It's been quite a year for all of us, I imagine. Uh, previous... Uh, to Astroscale, I was uh, part of OneWeb. I was there since day one, so I helped uh, design the constellation, the mission operations of the uh, the OneWeb constellation uh, system. I was involved with a lot of the system design, system engineering, mission operations, and then I got heavily involved in the uh, spectrum policy, actually, as well as the uh, the space debris policy. And was uh, became quite passionate about how we how uh, OneWeb approaches uh, orbital responsibility and uh, helped the company pursue a solution. Um, actually, I mentioned today for for how to uh, prepare the satellites uh, that uh, fail in orbit um, for eventual removal by a third party. Um, so that was a, a big part of my role at OneWeb. Um, which kind of naturally led me to pursue uh, kind of going all in on orbital sustainability and joining Astroscale, which uh, has the mission of, uh, of uh, orbital sustainability. Uh, previous to to OneWeb, I was at uh, NASA Ames Research Center for five years, working on 
a variety of mission concepts, um, kind of doing mission design, systems engineering. Uh, and then way before I left, I was doing mission operations on the, the Lunar Atmosphere Dust Environment Explorer, or LADI. Uh, so that was a really, really cool mission to work on before uh, parting ways there. Uh, but yeah, today I'm going to be talking about um, our current mission that is in space right now, uh, LCD. And so I'll walk through uh, the, the mission and talk about, you know, why we're pursuing this and how it pertains to uh, our other services, and then uh, in particular active debris removal, as we see kind of as a, a significant challenge, but very important mission uh, to pursue. So I believe uh, the slides, everyone should have the slides. So um, I believe I can just uh, speak to the slide numbers there. So if you're on slide one, you can advance to slide two. And uh, let me just do a check there. Is that, uh, is that a good way to move forward? Everyone's with yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, try and mention the, the slide number every time you change it. You got it. Thank you. Okay, so this slide is a bit about philosophy, which I, I, I don't really need to cover, but uh, it's, you know, something a lot of, I'm sure all of us are, are passionate about. It's the fact that we, we understand that space development uh, in the future demands sustainability uh, to go with that hand in hand. And, you know, something I believe in strongly is that to, to sort of enter this, this next phase of human evolution or society, um, you know, even that's a, a made-up concept. Um, to, to, to kind of get there, I think we need to have our development uh, be completely sustainable. Um, you know, so not not uh, exploiting resources or, or polluting or depleting uh, what we have, and just uh, you know, sort of more of a closed system. Um, here in Japan, they they kind of consider this sort of what they call society 5.0 this kind of next stage. And I guess specifically Society 5.0 wasn't targeted at space exploration and utilization. It wasn't necessarily in mind. But if you look at the state of the space industry, um, we all understand that, you know, how strongly sustainability in Earth and space are, are intertwined. Uh, climate science, key climate science is done with assets in space and Looking at uh, agricultural resources and emissions monitoring, um, and access to space and safe space operations uh, is key um, key to those applications. Uh, and then, you know, if we look beyond Earth orbit, when you think about uh, you know settling other other our planets, depending on how you uh, feel about that, uh, you know, we really can't can't move on to, to doing that without figuring out how to be sustainable. Um, so again, you know, sustainability in Earth and space are, are strongly related here. Um, and, you know, resource exploitation, I, you know, it really has to be no longer a part of, of technological, technological advancement. And so what we focus on space should be geared towards and targeting renewables, uh, resilience, remediation of existing debris and, and uh, you know, all these technologies that are import, uh, sorry, important for sustainability are trailing uh, considerably behind the development. Uh, you know, just looking at these 
graphics at the bottom, which aren't necessarily, uh, you know, too quantitative in their their uh, depictions, but you know, just to show that yeah, we're launching significantly more spacecraft, uh, we're utilizing space more heavily, depending upon it uh, more more frequently, um, and that's all development. But the sustainability aspect uh, is is needs to be it's trailing. It needs more investment. Um, so if we go to slide three. This is you know, what Astroscale views as the technologies and the approaches that can be pursued to improve the current situation. So the first aspect, of course, is uh, better space situational awareness. So just better understanding the, the risks of the environment, uh, you know, measuring, understanding, scoping out the, the problem. That's uh, obviously a key first step in, in planning a way forward. Uh, is to understand the problem. Um, and then there's active debris removal. Um, you know, and the most direct definition is removing large pieces of debris. Uh, but the idea is that we mitigate the risk of future events that uh, create additional debris, uh, recognizing that uh, one of the most substantial threats to uh, you know, safety of operations is the debris that is too small to track from the ground, uh, but large enough to to pose a significant threat to on-order assets. Uh, and, you know, the source of those small pieces of debris are large pieces of debris. So we need to focus on getting large pieces of debris before, get them out of the org before they become uh, more of a problem. So that's kind of uh, looking backwards in time, you know, uh, how do we address the problems that are, have existed in the past, but then looking forward, we need to start planning for end-of-life deorbit. So this is the notion of preparing future satellites or preparing satellites that are to be launched in such a way that they can be removed at the end of their life in, um, in a safe and uh, predictable way. So whether that's putting a docking interface on or optical fiducials or just, you know, at the bare minimum, keeping in mind uh, in your design of the spacecraft and operations that maybe it would be advantageous or uh, safe or sustainable to dock with or grapple that satellite in the future. That's sort of the philosophy that we are uh, advocating for. And then beyond that is looking at the, the ability to service satellites, so extend the lifetime, repurpose, and maybe someday recycle satellites that are aging. So we're making better use of the resources and uh, the mass that is already in orbit. Um, and so that's where the Astroscale uh, is really coming in here. That's, that's our mission is to secure safe and sustainable development space for the benefit of future generations. So really looking at the long-term, um, investing in these long-term solutions that will help uh, the environment beyond, uh, you know, just the, the applications today. Um, and we have, we're founded in 2013. We actually have close to 200 employees now you know, across five offices, Japan, uh, United Kingdom, U.S., Israel, Singapore. And uh, it's an extremely passionate team. Uh, everyone, you know, everyone's very driven by the mission here, uh, very inspired and 
and you know we've been fortunate to find others who are oh I'm sorry this is slide four I know I sorry I'm on slide four um, and we've been fortunate to raise uh, 191 million in capital so far in support of this mission uh, so we're very grateful to get that uh, that support as we pursue this mission. Excuse me, Mike? Yes. Yeah, Mike, this is Dan. Um, that's really impressive that you've managed to raise so much capital to do this. But a question that I, I always have about um, debris mitigation, I, I'm really curious about the business plan, um, and maybe you're going to say more about this, but specifically, who pays for it? Um, is this the, the people who launch the satellites and that will turn into debris? Is it people who are scared about having their satellite get hit by debris? Is it insurance companies? Um, what, how, how do you, how do you foresee that? Yeah, thank you for that question. And <laughs> it's, it's really the, uh, you know, the key question for a business aspect. And I'll, I'll say there's, there's folks at the company who are, uh, better at answering that question than I am. Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of us like to say, you know, if no one pays for it, then everyone pays for it. Um, so the solution to who pays for debris is kind of, uh, I guess, still open-ended to a certain extent, but who owns the debris is the launching state, um, or the, I guess, the, 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 you know, owning state and not necessarily the private company. So, some of the large debris objects there are owned by by governments, and um, you know Japan is is they've been yeah we can kind of consider them to be a first mover in this regard, in that they have uh, commissioned us uh, last year we won the contract to uh, to launch uh, build the Address J mission, which is the first mission of its kind to go up and inspect a spent upper stage, so a large rocket body that Japan launched many years ago. And so this is a first mission to go up and assess the state of the object. And it's really a precursor mission to uh, a possible follow-on to actually go up, grapple, capture, and remove this object. So that is one example of a state that is, uh, you know, taking responsibility and then funding uh technology developments and eventual missions to clean up debris. And uh, we've also seen recently um, ESA is funding through the, I guess, the, uh, the Adrios mission um, to remove a piece of debris, I believe, uh, clear space. Uh, and, and some other partners won that, uh, won that mission. That's, a, I think it was 100 million euros. Um so that that's another you know government that's um, putting some serious money uh, towards this solution, and I'm I'm pretty sure we're going to see others uh, following suit here as this becomes you know space becomes I mean it's only more and more utilized and this will be only more of an issue. So I think we'll see more actors come into play here and start investing uh, in these solutions, starting with the government uh, for active debris removal. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and then there's end-of-life services, which is geared towards more commercial operators, and I'll, I'll talk more about that as well. Okay, so moving on to slide five. So this is a look at the various services that we're pursuing. Um, I've spoken mostly about active debris removal, but 
but uh, we have a number of services across a number of orbits, so kind of top-down. Uh, did I say Sly 5? Sly 5. So at the top we have Life Extension, and this is a service that's primarily targeted for uh, satellites in geosynchronous orbit. Uh, satellites that, you know, maybe are at the end of their fuel reserves, but have totally uh, total control, uh, complete functionality of the satellite. So, uh, you know, they have an asset that they could generate revenue or have a you know longer life, but uh, the problem is they don't have enough fuel to do their station keeping and eventual uh, deorbit burn. So, Astroscale. Uh, would provide a service uh, that we're calling Lexi for life extension um, to you know do something very similar to um, what's already been demonstrated by MVV one mission, which is to uh, sort of attach in a non-invasive way to the client and just provide uh, Delta V really station keeping maneuvers uh, as needed to uh, extend the lifetime of that satellite. Uh, Next one is in-situ SSA and inspection. This is uh, something that uh, we are actually working on right now uh, for JAXA to inspect an upper stage. Um, so we'll rendezvous with the client. We'll uh, take a number of images, assess the tumble rates, assess the structural integrity, you know, make sure it's in one piece and that uh, it's safe to approach. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And orbit transfers, um, honestly, we kind of get that one for free. Uh, you know, that's kind of the basis of our our, our services to uh, rendezvous and dock with client and then uh, change its orbit or provide station keeping. Uh, so orbit transfers is naturally part of that. But, you know, that, that type of service is attractive if you're changing orbit of your client or you want to do a, a salvage operation um, if it wasn't deployed and if you're so I want to point the right orbit. We can provide a service to to correct that. Active debris removal. Oh, is there a question? Yeah. Um, are, are you going to services going to be refuelable by design, and and will they be purely chemical, purely electric, or a combination? Yeah. So the Elsa D mission and uh, Address J are going to be chemical only. Um, and the reason is these are, you know, LCD is a demonstration mission. It's kind of a one-off. Address J is kind of breaking into this, uh, the first mission to do in-situ SSA. But as we get closer towards a, a commercial service, um, you know, larger scale, uh, we're going to be pursuing, uh, you know, much higher efficiency thrust. So we'll, we'll definitely be looking at electrical propulsion, which is the baseline for our life extension satellites. And will be an uh, integral part of our active debris removal as well, uh, because we're, uh, you know, aside from a large amount of delta V, it's just a lot of impulse to apply to a large client, a multi-ton client. Um, so right now it's chemical only. Uh, in the future, slash now, uh, there will be uh, both chemical and uh, electrical. Yeah, because we right now, um, chemical propellant is in, in kind of a mid-thrust capability is important for doing the rendezvous and, and uh, docking maneuvers, so you have ample control authority to do those fine maneuvers uh, at the end of the uh, docking. Um, and then as far as refuelable, 
uh, refillability goes, that's uh, definitely something that's interesting to us um, right now because the the tankers aren't in orbit and um, you know we're not going to be having uh, refillability baked into our initial designs, but um, it's something that we're we're definitely engaged in uh, and interested in. Um, you know, when you're in the business of of providing Delta V uh, fuel availability and it's a key resource. So uh, it's definitely something that's uh, on our future roadmap as we move, as, you know, we'll continue to look at that and, and see how it develops. Uh, I'd like to have a follow-up question to something you said there. Um, you talk about moving to larger scales. Um, is this in terms of the client vehicles you'll target or the sort of the size of the spacecraft which Astroscale will be providing for their services? Um, could you could you clarify a little bit more on that, and you know if that means higher power spacecraft or if you still yeah what kind of mass ranges you're looking in? Yeah, so um, I mean it depends on the service line. Uh, when we look at active debris removal, for example, uh, kind of the the main threat to orbital sustainability are these objects that are four tons to eight tons. Uh, so the, the first, ob- first objects we're looking at are kind of in the four ton uh, regime. Uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're not targeting eight tons just yet. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty large clients, um, life extension, kind of the same, same ballpark for geos, uh, these multi-ton clients uh, for end of life services. This uh, that service arm is really targeted towards some of the large uh, commercial constellations. Um, you know, a lot of the broadband satellites, for example. Those clients are are not multiple tons. They're talking typically less than a thousand kilograms, and then you know, one web's case, they're 150 kilograms. Uh, so it's kind of a range in there. Uh, so this is a uh, you know smaller satellite, uh, both service and client. Okay, thanks. So just a very short follow-up. Um, do you already have an idea what kind of electric propulsion technology you're planning to utilize? Um, y- yes. Yeah, but I'm not sure if we're kind of uh, settled on the vendors. and actually not sure what I can <laughs> divulge at this time, but yeah. Uh, okay. All right, thanks for answering. Yeah, you bet. Uh, okay, so if we go to slide... Six, six, seven, eight are just kind of some pictures. Side six is uh, a depiction of Elsa D, which is currently in orbit right now. And uh, I'll actually have a video that I'll ask people to look at in a few slides. So just move on to slide seven. This is, shall I say, an artist rendition of uh, one one approach to uh, docking with and capturing uh, a spent upper stage. I believe this is a kind of model of the H2A upper stage. Um, so we're targeting the uh, using the payload uh, adapter fitting ring there as a kind of a, a sort of standard interface, uh, which is present on quite a few debris objects. So uh, that presents a, a sturdy interface with which we can grapple and control uh, the debris object. Uh, with our servicer. We'll go to the slide eight. So look at our life extension 
uh, in orbit or Lexi uh, service here, uh, which is on the left in, the, in this drawing. It's uh, approaching the client on the right there, and it is also approaching the payload adapter fitting uh, the ring there, which is present on a, a pretty high proportion of uh, geo clients. Um, and so we approach it using, yeah, it's, it's a little hard to see, but there's these kind of four arms that are extending that will uh, grab onto the ring and provide a, um, a docking, uh, uh, you know, sorry, uh, it's late here. Uh, you know, the, the docking interface, uh, and we can apply the torques and, and uh, any of the momentum changes through that that interface to the client. Um, and of course it's, it's capable of doing multiple docking, so it can, uh, dock and, and undock multiple times, uh, and, uh, feasibly serve multiple clients as well, uh, with a single spacecraft. Alright. Um, going to slide nine, um, just kind of a, a depiction of how Astroscale organizes or kind of views its effort um, tackling orbital debris. I mean, we're you know mostly talking about technology here, but uh, you know we already know that there was a question about the business case: who's going to pay for that? And then if it's nation states um, or commercial operators, you know, does that depend on the policies? Uh, can you even you know have your spacecraft dock with another you know an asset of another nation state? You know, what are they? What precedence is there? Um, so it's it's a multifaceted problem. It's not just about technology. Uh, you know, our our goal is to make this. If we really want sustainability and development to go hand in hand, it has to be, uh, you know, commercially viable and part of an ecosystem where it's it's not just an expense uh, for operators and, and states, but it's also uh, seen as an investment in it being. Uh, mitigation of orbital debris and, and end of life services. So the more that, uh, people recognize that this is an investment uh, in a sustainable future and, uh, keeping their, their business operations safer and more sustainable, uh, the more we're going to see, uh, you know, buy in to this, this philosophy and in this technology. Uh, so it's, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in building the, helping others see the business case and kind of taking a long-term view. And then we're doing a lot of work helping uh, regulators because a lot of this, there's just no existing or supporting policy for uh, these types of activities, which are, you know, I think everyone can kind of see the, the sustainable value in it, but, you know, if the framework doesn't exist, it's it's hard to, to know whether or not it's legal. So these are the types of efforts that we're focusing on um, within our company and uh, across the, the global organization. So going to slide 10, um, a little more information about our LCD mission. Um, oh, it's too bad I, uh, I didn't update the slide, but uh, it, it was scheduled for March 20th, but there was a... Uh, uh, a slight delay on the, the ground uh, equipment, so we had to launch on March 22nd. Um, but now we're in space, the spacecraft, we're talking to it. Um, we're currently in sort of the initial phases of commissioning. 
Uh, and this mission is the first, it's, it's really the world's first uh, end-of-life demonstration that proves debris removal technologies end-to-end. And what I mean is the the kind of uh, the identification and location of a client, the rendezvous and docking, and then the deorbit of a client that is uh, free-flying. It's, it's kind of the first time that this has been done or will be done. So the spacecraft, it's really two spacecrafts that are launched together. Um, and you, on the bottom right, you see them separated in orbit. So we have the the servicer, which uh, has the gold MLI and the deployed solar panels. That is the, um, you know, the, the servicer, the Elsa D spacecraft, as we consider it. Uh, it's capable of, uh, you know, uh, advanced uh, maneuvers for rendezvous and docking. It has a docking device, which is kind of depicted on the left there. Uh, and then on the, the right-hand side, you can see free-floating is uh, the client. Um, and the client is launched uh, with a, a docking plate on it. So it's uh, we, we call this prepared. And it's a ferromagnetic plate uh, with some optical fiducials on it. And so this helps guide in the servicer uh, for the, the final rendezvous. And then what it allows is the, the use of a, uh, a magnetic capture device. And so when the client is prepared, we can greatly simplify the uh, rendezvous and docking because we're using a single degree of freedom instead of, you know, our robotic arm. Um, and uh, the contact dynamics are, are favorable, you know, kind of an elastic collision where, you know, the attractive forces kind of help uh, um, offset some of the, the errors and just greater error tolerance in, in general as compared to um, some other mechanical interfaces. Um, so it's not, you know, if, you, if you're looking at fluid transfer, for example, if you want to refuel a spacecraft and use magnetic uh, interface in this sort of configuration, it's a, it's a bit different solution because really what we're trying to do is design something where we can take a hold and tolerate uh, large errors and just have a good uh, have a good contact point with which we can control the client. Um, and the reason why we want to tolerate, uh, you know, have a higher error tolerance is because we need to have a solution that uh, can dock with a client that is no longer controlled. So a client that is tumbling. Um, okay, so moving on to slide uh, 12. Um, Okay, so I talked about preparing satellites before launching something that were demonstrated with Alpha D, and we we think it's really important because it it predefines an interface that uh, we know uh, serves the purpose. You know, it's it's safe, it's controlled, because we do rendezvous and docking. I mean, anytime you have two spacecraft coming together, it's a pretty tricky operation. And so, if you understand the interface, that really helps constrain the engineering problem. Um, so, if you go to slide 13. Uh, this notion is already being adopted by OneWeb. Um, OneWeb is now launching all of its satellites with a ferromagnetic docking plate that was built by Altius Space Machines. Uh, we helped out with the fiducial pattern. Uh, and uh, go ahead. Is that standard, is that standard published? 
That is a great question. Um, I, I know that was the intention. Um, and it should be available, and it would be disappointing if it was not. But uh, that's a great question. I don't have an exact answer for you. <laughs> but uh, thank you. I'm going to make note of that. Um, and let's see, just this February, Lockheed Martin uh, made, you know, announced that their GPS satellites would be upgraded for with in-orbit servicing in mind. Uh, I don't think there's any further details on what what that means in terms of uh, implementation. But this this notion that a satellite is not just launched and then forgotten about um, is something that, uh, you know, we'd like to see catch on more. Uh, slide 14, um, just another point about preparing. So aside from the mechanical interface, uh, to allow for a known docking point, the optical fiducials are very useful in determining these, the client attitude and guiding in a safe approach. So you understand there's a safe corridor with which you can approach the satellite and not risk running into to anything else. Um, it's kind of building on that to going on slide 15. Um, when we look at active debris removal, this is a really kind of a extreme case for on-orbit servicing. Um, is because there's just so many unknowns about the the mission. Um, when you, uh, sorry, I lost my cursor here. Um, when you're approaching the client, you know how much. What is the mass of the client? We that's an unknown because there could be consumables uh, on board that may or may not be uh, remaining. Sloshing around. Uh, what is the shape of the object? Uh, again, you can have the, the CAD model available, but knowing exactly how the solar, the configuration of solar panels or the antennas uh, and their condition is is unknown uh, before the mission is launched. You know, and the, of course the amounts of inertia as a result of that, the tumble rate and axes um, is the object intact and, and whole. What does the surface look like? Uh, can you count on enough contrast or reflectivity to guide your sensors? And so that all of these unknowns drive a pretty uh, capable servicer that has to be able to assess and uh, accommodate, uh, you know, changes and unknowns in the, in the client. Uh, and, you know, we talked about the preparation of the docking plate, which helps all that, but, you know, ADR is, is, uh, looking at objects that are not prepared. Most of space debris just doesn't have known interfaces to help guide us in. So this is a pretty demanding um, service that we're looking at developing here. So if you go to uh, slide 16, uh, this is a look at, you know, how are we approaching this problem? Uh, because if you just if you try to tackle all the unknowns at the same time, it's a significant risk. It's hard to constrain the problem and understand uh, how to get better, essentially. So yeah, kind of our approach is uh, you could look at this as, as being incremental. So the first thing that we're doing is solving the, the problem of the dance, which is matching rates with the tumbling client. And so once you zero out the relative motion, 
docking capacity. I mean, it just gets much easier to dock with and manipulate an object when you have zero relative velocity and rates. Uh, it's much safer as well. Um, the next mission we have, we're pursuing the Address J, Address J mission, which is, you know, we're approaching an unknown object, or sorry, it's a known object, but unknown integrity, but uh, an unknown spin rates. But through this mission, uh, we're eliminating some of those unknowns through inspections. And so this will feed into the spin solution space of the follow-on mission that uh, will do the full-scale ADR. So we're not biting off of you know, the full ADR mission on step one, uh, which would you know, have a, a lot more open parameters. We're kind of um, eliminating some of the unknowns before we pursue that. Uh, so the, the follow-on would be, yeah, an ADR mission, uh, but it uses previously obtained knowledge. Uh, so we're proving out other technologies such as, you know, robotic arm and uh, the control of a, a client. But moving on past that, we have to be having the, the full capability to address other unknowns. So, you know, looking at uh, increasing the capability as it pertains to addressing higher tumble rates, uh, more flexibility in robotic arms because we want to address more interfaces on prepared clients, you know, a wider range in masses, um, and just in intelligent decision making on the robotics to, um, you know, oh, go ahead. Is your ADR solution always reentry, or is it spreading the things out that could collide with each other and generate large debris? Um, are, are you always aiming to, to to bring them down? Or are you perhaps trying to separate the items, the large items that uh, are most likely to be the sources of new debris? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it, it depends on what the client, I mean, you know, the, the owner wants, really. I think there's going to be scenarios where, yeah, separating these large objects and making sure that, I mean, for example, two SL-16s in the same orbit, you know, crisscrossing orbits, if we, if we change the altitudes, we're going to lower the risk to the environment significantly. Um, so that that is one one potential solution, uh, but it's kind of delaying the problem. But, uh, you know, our technology could do either. Um is a slightly different solution in terms of the the spacecraft capability because when you do reentry, um, you know it's a high thrust uh, kind of mission ending approach. Um, but something that we want to be pursuing long term is is more reusability uh, and having the ability for a spacecraft to to do multiple missions. So, uh, right. I was I was just yeah. going to ask. This all looks like one to one type of uh, problem solving. Have you got any one to n? Um, solutions that you're working as well. Yeah, so um, in the, the our UK office is pursuing end of life services, and uh, so the, the mission we have right now is called ELSA D. That's D stands for demonstration, and they're pursuing ELSA M, which stands for multi client. So the idea okay. is that we have a servicer that that does uh, you know multiple multiples of clients. Uh, because we see that as critical for making this a cost-effective solution because one-to-one is just right now that's kind of the phase we're in for a demonstration, um, but but long-term it needs to be much more cost-efficient than that. That's, right on. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Okay, so um, slide 17, um, really just kind of summary. I mean, uh, overall what we want to do is balance um, 
development and sustainability. And actually, it's kind of an inspiration behind the name of Astroscale, if you think like scales of justice, if you will. Uh, so balancing development and sustainability is, is what we're looking for. And, you know, we have that forward path where we want to prepare clients and provide end-of-life services. But, uh, you know, to really balance out, we need to remediate uh, the debris that exists there. Um, so on-over servicing is, is something that we're pursuing in the future, but we also need to uh, pursue a, a solution for ADR and getting rid of the debris that presents a, a, a risk today. Uh, so that's our commitment is uh, to make ADR um, our space development in, in this de- decade, you know, make this a regular routine service uh, by the end of the decade. Uh, so, yeah, slide 18 is just uh, saying thank you. I really appreciate this time. I hope I... You know, I want to leave a few minutes for questions here. Um, yeah, just my, my contact information. So thank you. Okay. Great. Mike, thank you. And that was an excellent presentation, as I expected. We've got several minutes before our usual quitting time, or this time the unusual quitting time of, a, of 11 here in the eastern U.S. And I've got a, got a quick question. Then, of course, anybody else has got a question. If you're not giving away, you know, corporate or company secrets, or indelicate issues. Um, you mentioned right near the beginning, what, the six countries that are involved in this, something, some number like that. And um, so uh, what was, uh, and I don't, don't remember this, what was the, the motivation, the motive, in a good way, for those particular countries to get involved? Did that make any sense? Yes, it did, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm you know, I'm I don't, trying yeah, to. I don't, I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want you to divulge something that's confidential, of course. No, no, no I won't. And, but I'm also uh, aware of the fact that you know it's not, you know, it's not fully uh, strategic. You know, some of these just things just happen. So, um, uh, for example, one of the, the first clients we were pursuing and, and partnering with and, and working with was uh, OneWeb. So you know that they're they're preparing their satellites, and so that relationship, you know, you, you know, OneWeb was based in the UK, so it made sense to have more presence in the UK. We already had employees in the UK, but it you know kind of strengthened our interest in, in developing there and, and being involved with uh, the European, uh, you know, having plug into the European Union at the time, uh, but uh, UKSA and ESA now. Um, uh, Japan was kind of a natural place for us to be headquartered. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interest in sustainability there. Um, as I mentioned, they're kind of the uh, first movers in terms of funding uh, the Address J mission. Um, yeah, U.S. was, you know, I think another natural place with uh, the, the enormous space industry there and. Um, NASA and um, a lot of the operators coming out of the U.S. as well. Um, and then um, last year we, we actually acquired our, our Lexi capabilities uh, from uh, acquiring a company that was previously known as Effective Space Solutions, and they were based in in uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. So that's uh, where that office comes from. So, yeah, hope that helps. <laughs> Good, thank you. All right. Do other folks do other folks have questions? 
Yeah, I've got one, Mike. Um, I, I think it's really impressive what, what you're trying to do with tumbling clients. Um, that's not easy. Um, do, doing your first motion orbit around the client, that involves a lot of thrust. I mean, these aren't natural orbits. You're thrusting continuously as you're doing that. And, and the goal in this is to actually achieve a hard dock between the servicer and the client. And, and that was a decision that I guess you made that a hard dock is important. I mean, there have been other ideas whereby you get close to a client and then you fling a net over it or something like that and just capture it. And you don't have to do all these this force motion orbit business. Why did you decide that a hard dock is necessary? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a hard talk, but at the same time, it's I view it slightly differently than the sort of a traditional hard dock as we, we see it because it does tolerate a lot more misalignment. Um, so when you're doing that force motion orbit uh, and you have the, you know, how you're controlling it with the thrusters, you have a finite uh, impulse. And so you're kind of wavering back and forth. And so having the magnetic interface really helps us tolerate a lot of that error. Um, but yeah, a hard dock is is definitely preferred over any sort of tethered uh, approach such as a harpoon or a net, just because of those dynamics, those couple dynamics of having, um, you know, a client at the end of a string is uh, it's pretty risky. Um, I guess I tell people, like, if you have a dog on a leash, you can prevent that dog from getting away from you, but there's nothing you can do to stop that dog from coming back at you. So, you know, if you have that uh, spacecraft a, a tether, there's nothing you can do to stop it from, from coming at the servicer. So having a hard dock was really a safety issue. Okay, so so you're saying that, that a hard dock is advisable um, to reduce the risk on the servicer. Um, that that's really interesting, and I, that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you bet. It's also about confirmation as well to understand. You know, if you cast a net, uh, it's hard to really get validation or confirmation that you do have it captured. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. And along those lines, what what kind of tumble rate can you accommodate on debris, and and what fraction of the high priority debris pieces that you're looking at removal in the in the four-ton category fall into that uh, that maximum tumble rate uh, constraint? Um, that's a great question. I mean, there's been, a, I think, quite a few assessments done looking at light curves on geo clients uh, that are, are tumbling, and those, you know, typically less than three degrees per second. Um, I mean, that, that's extreme, actually, for a geo client. You know, those are typically less than a degree. And so we expect uh, a lot of the clients in Leo to be somewhat similar, but uh, you know, we're, LCD is is the first mission, so it's not looking at multiple degrees per second. I'll say, um, uh, but looking long term, that's that's kind of the, the aim is to be able to address some of the faster spinning ones. But uh, I, I guess I predict that there will be some clients that once they get up there and look at, you know, we could just determine that they're spinning too fast, um, but it's really hard to know. Uh, you know, right now our best assessments are done looking at uh, you know, the light curves and trying to fit models to that. 
Wow. So it's hard to get kind of a full assessment of what the, the top population is doing out there. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Economy Space, to contact us, or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you.